0: hello hello and hello again and welcome back to yet Another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, you are tuned into the numero uno, that is number one in Spanish, for those of you that do not know, <laughs> podcast. Um, guys, you know, my name is Dr. Guys and Ladies. Uh, my name is Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topic, but again, you're now tuned into our OITE, or Orthopedic In-Training Exam Review, where we are going over some high-yield material. And we are on some sports and we are on the upper extremity. And this time we're going to kind of talk some more rotator cuffs to the throwing shoulder. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop in today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Uh, For that muscle. So uh,
1: just a. A few things to impress your uh, sports attendings on is that (laughs) Gutelier classification system. And then you can talk about the uh, tangent sign for those patients that have a chronic rotator cuff tear. And uh, now that we've kind of gone over some of the imaging for it, um, what uh, what does the kind of initial non-operative treatment of a rotator cuff tear look like?
2: Yeah, so these are going to be things... um... For, you know, like physical therapy, NSAIDs, or sometimes you do injections, you know, subacromial injections, where you inject some, you know, local anesthetic and some steroids. Um, But another thing is that PT tends to do very well for a lot of these patients that for which non-operative treatment is indicated, which we'll talk about next and, um, you know, three out of four, 75% of the patients get better there are multiple studies that show that. But one of the things regarding physical therapy is that the patient expectations is very important. If they do not believe therapy is going to work and don't really give it a try. It likely may not work. So if you really, you know, counsel these patients and say, Hey, you know, I, you have these, you know, you have this tear, but the majority of patients get a lot better with therapy. If you actually, you know, go on and do the exercise, give it a try, work with the therapist, uh, likely you'll likely do well, you know, so, again, just knowing patient expectations regarding therapy and the treatment of rotator cuff muscles uh, and rotator cuff tears is going to be very important. But 75% of people or so get better. And since we're talking about kind of this non-operative treatment, what patients with rotator cuff tears should uh, be treated non-operatively? Like, I guess what are the indications for non-operative management of a rotator cuff tear? Uh,
1: yeah, so the uh, – I mean – First one is the kind of irreparable tears. So when you're looking at uh, the size of the tear, how far that tear is retracted, like if that uh, tendon is retracted medial to the glenoid uh, or the muscle quality, as we talked about with the uh, Goutalier classification system, and if there's humeral head migration, uh, that humeral head migration is... Uh, kind of an indication of a chronic tear that's likely not going to be uh, repaired successfully because it, over time that humeral head has migrated superiorly, but also uh, patients with uh, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. So you have these massive irreparable tears, but then you also have these smaller tears. So ones with more just tendonitis, uh, partial thickness, and uh, some very small, like less than one centimeter full thickness tears. These patients tend to do uh, very well with therapy. Um, and uh, also like older patients, if, you're, if it's a 65-year-old uh, guy who's uh, on his way to retirement and uh, is, has just kind of regular run-of-the-mill hobbies and all of that, we're probably not going to be repairing some of those full thickness tears in the uh, elderly population, but uh, on the flip side of that, what patients should a rotator cuff pair uh, a rotator cuff tear repair be considered?
2: Yeah, so these are going to be pretty much all like acute full thickness tears. Um, the, those are the patients, you know, if you have a a you know a, a, even if you have like a sixty year old patient who falls and dislocates their shoulder and end up and ends up. Uh, um, tearing the rotator cuff uh, muscles; those are the ones that likely you should repair. Uh, versus, you know, on the other hand, if you have somebody that's 65 years old that has had kind of chronic pain in their shoulder, no acute inciting event; those are ones we may undergo non-operative treatment. But anybody that has like an acute full thickness tear, uh, except for maybe just some small tears, um, should be repaired, as well as any chronic uh, full thickness tears in in the younger population or in patients that are that are less than. Um, 65 years old. Those may be patients that that will uh, benefit from uh, rotator cuff repair. So again, you know, these patients that have these acute events and have an acute traumatic uh, rotator cuff tear um, should be uh, should be repaired. Versus, and also those that are younger that have tried all their non-operative management and they have failed that and they still have this, you know, these full thickness tears. Those are the ones that can be uh, repaired and. Just to read up a little bit more on this, if you like to, this is a, a study that was uh, published in the Clinic of Sports Medicine in 2012 named Epidemiology, Natural History and Indications for Treatment of Rotator Cuff Tears. Um, and again, that was in 2012. So if you want to read up some more about kind of what patients should be treated uh, operatively versus not operatively you can check that article out. Um, so continuing on, so say we, you know, we had this patient, 65 year old male was, uh, was, uh, was running or rollerblading and, and fell and dislocated his shoulder and comes to clinic in a week or two and MRI shows you had a full thickness rotator cuff tear before this didn't have any prior shoulder pain or dysfunction and you and you elect to operate and, and fix it. Um, what are some differences and outcomes between open and arthroscopic rotator cuff repair?
1: I like the uh, the rollerblading. You don't see that that often.
0: <laughs> don't see it too often, right? Uh,
1: but uh, yes, yeah, so um, technically equivalent outcomes between open and arthroscopic rotator cuff repair. And because uh, open was really what was previously done and the gold standard with uh, bone tunnels in repairing these rotator cuffs is uh, I think still considered kind of the, the gold standard here, and that's really commonly done through an open uh, technique. Um, but with when you compare the open and the arthroscopic, although the equivalent outcomes uh, is there, uh, patients tend to have less pain, uh, and you get a little bit better visualization when you do it arthroscopically. Uh, and you kind of just think about it like with an open procedure, you have a bigger incision, more soft tissue dissection. And so it's going to be associated with a little bit more pain. Um, and then when you're using a scope, you you really, you have access to the entire shoulder. You can look intra-articularly, you can look subacromial, you can look uh, in the rotator interval. But when you do these open, you just don't have uh, that good a visualization of the entire shoulder itself. So uh, the transition to arthroscopic repair has kind of taken over. And it's really because of the ancillary procedures you can do with it that you really can't do with an open repair. So uh, just remember equivalent outcomes, but uh, less pain and better visualization with arthroscopic repairs. Um, yep. And uh, you'll, you'll notice when you do enough of these, uh, either on your own or with an attending that um, they, they really talk about and things we should know is that blood flow is really important for repairing structures whether that's a broken bone or a rotator cuff so uh where is the blood flow to the repaired rotator cuff coming from
2: yes yeah, so this is coming from more of that kind of that peribursal tissue as well as at the bone anchor site you know i know different attendings will use different types of um, fixation and different types of anchors and i know they're some like vented anchors um, that some people use and they see the advantage of that is you kind of get um, some of those growth factors and cytokines that, that come in from the um, from the anchor side that go into the tendon as well as the peri tissue so, uh, that's just something to know. I don't know what they'll test on that, but I don't know. I think it's still good to know in case you get asked, or just for your general knowledge too. You know, so patients may ask. You never know what you never know what questions patients may ask. They go on Doctor Google and figure out a lot yeah. of things, and that may be one of the things they ask you. Who knows? Yeah. Um, and I always heard this term like thrown around a lot, and didn't understand it for a while. Maybe I just didn't like look it up, but I just like I don't know what they're talking about. But what is a pasta? P A S T A. A
1: uh, pasta lesion is a partial articular supraspinatus tendinous avulsion uh, lesion that is uh, as part of that alphabet soup of uh, shoulder and sports uh, terminology, like the haggle lesions, the pasta lesions, the alps lesions, and the slap lesions. You kind of you have them all. So a pasta, remember, it's just partial articular supraspinatus tendinous avulsion. So you're basically what you're looking at on a coronal MRI is at the supraspinatus, you're not going to see a full thickness tear because then that would just be defined as a rotator cuff tear. But if you look on the articular surface and you see a partial, uh, like the, the articular sided, uh, portion of the tendon is avulsed off of the humeral head, then that's considered a pasta lesion. It's not on the bursal side, it's on the articular side. The uh, repair for this is controversial because uh, you have to really be a good estimator of how partial this tendinous avulsion is. Is it 20%, 50%, 75%, 90% and Uh, So for, what I've seen is people with the uh, kind of lesser partial tears, more towards the 20 to 30% range, they're going to get just a a debridement because it's on the articular side, the bursal side is still intact, and so they're just going to get a tendinous debridement, whereas those that have a larger portion of the partial articular-sided tear, uh, you may consider actually just creating a full thickness tear and repairing it. Uh, But things to consider are the tear depth, the pattern of the tear and the amount of uncovered footprint. And that's kind of the stuff that I was talking about with how much of a partial tear is this? Is it greater than 50%? Then you might consider repairing it with a suture anchor back down, or if it's 20%, then you're just going to debride it and kind of let the patient do some activity modification and uh, physical therapy. So uh, the, the pasta lesion is a little bit controversial, but, uh, I think once you look at them enough, uh, you'll start to understand that, uh, articular sided tears are typically better for patients, um, because they're not in direct contact with that subacromial bursa and subacromial space. Whereas bursal sided tears tend to be, uh, worse. And, uh, we're probably going to get into that in a little bit later about what the difference is, but, um, Uh, just things to keep in mind so uh, moving on is there any difference in uh, clinical outcomes or healing rates after rotator cuff repair with early versus delayed rehab
2: yeah so no there's not going to be any difference you know in in these patients and I I think I feel like I've seen this on the question that they'll they'll say I think I'll just say just that and they'll say like oh you know, if you go to early rehab, you do better versus if you go to delayed rehab, you do better. But I don't, I don't think at, at at the end, there's not really any clinical difference between an early uh, versus a delayed motion rehabilitation protocol. So post-op, although know, you have these patients to mobilize for, you know, four or six weeks, I, you know, I, I know different attendings do different things based on the type of tear and what all they did. But, you know, there's not really any any difference in outcomes with early versus you know letting them wait for a little while and then getting them started on a rehabilitation protocol so uh, yeah no difference yeah it's similar uh, to uh, the ACL
1: too also has that question yeah. of, uh, that the uh, lengthened rehab versus accelerated rehab and there's no difference between those either
2: yeah 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 I forgot we did talk about that we yeah yeah if you're listening just look back listen a couple episodes before this and you'll hear us uh, ask a similar question on there yeah um, Now, what is an option? So, you know, say you have like a 35-year-old male that has an irreparable supraspinatus as well as an infraspinatus tear, um, and they have no evidence of glenohumeral arthritis. So they just have these irreparable uh, rotator cuff tears And on a younger patient or a patient younger than 65. I said 35, but it's like a patient younger than 65. What are some options for them, for these patients who you think may be a little young for shoulder replacements? Uh,
1: These patients, because they have lost their supraspinatus and infraspinatus, uh, I keep talking about that superior buttress, and that's something that you have to kind of recreate for these patients so that they don't start to get that high-riding humeral head. Uh, And the no glenohumeral arthritis is the kind of key point in this, is that once they have arthritis, it's kind of a, a done deal, and you go down a different tree and the pathway here, but for patients without arthritis, but they have these irreparable uh, tears, you can consider a tended transfer, like a latissimus transfer to the greater uh, tuberosity. And basically what that's doing is it's taking the latissimus and kind of bringing it up and over the top of the humerus to help provide that buttress, but also to help them with uh, external rotation because they have lost their infraspinatus and they've lost that a uh, a good portion of that external rotation strength and uh, like you talked about before, there's so many uh, shoulder internal rotators like the subscap, the pec, uh, teres major that taking away that latissimus does not really hinder a lot of their internal rotation um, and then other things you can consider like a lower trapezius transfer. Um, all of these were, uh, a little bit too specialized for the center that I went to residency and we didn't do any of these, but, um, we still had our kind of journal clubs about them and, and learned about them a fair amount, but yeah. So two key tendon transfers are the latissimus dorsi transfer, as well as the lower trapezius. And then, uh, one other one, um, which is typically reserved for, I think, a little bit of older patients. So if they're nearing that 65-year-old range and not necessarily like the 35- or 40-year-old range, um, you can do uh, the uh, superior capsular reconstruction with like a dermal allograft. Uh, And what that does is it's really just designed, like I said, to provide that Uh, superior buttress for the humeral head, but because it's a dermal allograft, there's no muscular tissue involved with it. So it doesn't really provide strength necessarily. It just helps seat the humeral head in a good location for the rest of the rotator cuff musculature that's intact and the deltoid to help uh, uh, provide some of the biomechanics for the shoulder. And then, uh, like I said before when you have these massive tears associated with glenohumeral arthritis, what's the uh, treatment uh, protocol for that?
2: Yeah. So for that, it would be something like a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. You know, you know, in order, the reason it wouldn't be a total shoulder arthroplasty because you need like functioning tuberosities uh, to kind of help with the force coupling and, and leaving the humeral head concentric. Uh, with the glenoid but for these patients that have these massive irreparable rotator cuff tears and they have signs of osteoarthritis these are the ones which you'll do a reverse shoulder arthroplasty and you'll kind of use that that deltoid will be the the main um the main workhorse of that of that shoulder um, allowing you to get function of that shoulder and i can't believe i forgot about the uh, scr and we actually have a podcast episode with Dr. Justin Mitchell, for those that are listening that want to learn a little bit more about superior capsular reconstructions and uh, when, what those are. If you want to dive a little bit deeper, go ahead and check that out. Um, but yeah, just continuing on and answering your question again for these massive, massive irreparable rotator cuff tears with osteoarthritis, uh, reverse shoulder arthritis would be an option for them. Now, moving to the anterior aspect uh, or the front of the shoulder. What are subscapularis tears associated with? We know they're, you know, sometimes they don't, they just show something else and, and, and you have to know this, but what are some of the things that subscap tears are associated with? Uh,
1: yeah, you'll, what, the, what they'll show you and how they'll ask these questions is they'll show you an axial uh, MRI. And um, what you'll see is a biceps tendon subluxation or dislocation and they'll tell you what is the associated pathology with this, and it's going to be a subscap tear. So the the big one to look out for is the biceps tendon subluxation, because we know that the subscap, as it comes across the anterior portion of the shoulder and inserts on that uh, medial border of the uh, greater tuberosity, it helps hold that biceps tendon within the bicipital groove, but once that tear happens, that biceps tendon can sublux anteriorly. Um, but you can also see like a coracohumeral ligament tear and, uh, a good kind of treatment option for these patients is, uh, not necessarily to repair the subscap and just put the biceps back in the bicipital groove. Um, You don't, once you repair a rotator cuff, you want to put as the least amount of stress on that repair as possible to allow it to heal completely. So you'll do a subscap repair, but then uh, a biceps tenodesis, whether that's an arthroscopic or an open biceps tenodesis, just to help kind of take that extra stress away from the uh, supraspinatus or subscapularis tear. Um, And then uh, another uh, commonly tested thing is the comma sign. What
2: is the comma sign? Yeah, it took me a while to figure out what this was really, and I had to look at a couple different pictures. Um, but a comma sign, what this is, this is an arthroscopic finding. So you know, they're going to show you a picture of uh, of you know, you're looking through a scope, and what this is is uh, it's a sign of a tear that's seen in arthroscopy, like I said. But it's going to be formed by the avulsed SGHL or superior glenohumeral ligaments, as well as a crack or humeral ligament, and it's the kind of this tissue. That formed it looks like a comma, and then you if you follow it, it leads you to your subscap. So that's one of the things to note for these, um for these subscapularis tears and and just google and take a look at the pictures um and, and see you know what you can what you can note from that but that's going to be one of the one of the big things to to know about these subscapularis tears and you just have to just look at a bunch of pictures and get used to seeing it i don't know i don't know what other better way to uh, explain yeah. <laughs> it than just and just just googling it and looking at it a bunch of times you know that's that's it <laughs> um now What is an option for an irreparable subscap tear in a young patient? So say, you know, 35 year old guy came in and, um, you know, he's been having problems with uh, internally rotating. He can just at at baseline hyper externally rotate his uh, his arm at uh, almost over 100 degrees without any pain. You get an MRI and it shows there's a subscap tear that's way retracted. Um, So what are some options for an irreparable subscap tear in a young patient?
1: Uh, just like, I mean, tendon transfers that happen uh, in the foot and in the hand, you want to take something that is kind of in line with the uh, tendon that is irreparable or the muscle belly that's irreparable. And so a good one for that is the pec major. They're both internal rotators of the shoulder. They're both in similar regions of the shoulder. So a pec major transfer um, can help uh kind of recreate some of the shoulder biomechanics uh, from an irreparable subscapularis tear. Um, and then we've valiantly tried to repair a rotator cuff in in somebody uh, one or two times, and they finally, they failed all of that. And uh, they've kind of moved on now to rotator cuff arthropathy. What, what kind of... What is that definition for maybe our uh, kind of first years listening in and they haven't really had a lot of experience with uh, that sort of definition?
2: Yeah. So these are going to be seen in like patients that have these massive rotator cuff tears. And since you don't have your rotator cuff and, you know, kind of helping hold that humeral head down and concentrically into into the joint, uh, with that gone, you, you just imagine there's nothing. Just like you mentioning this whole time, no buttress up top. The humeral head starts to migrate superiorly. So, you know, this is going to be a massive rotator cuff tear that's going to be seen with humeral head migration. And this also leads to erosive changes of the joint. So glenar humeral arthritis. As well, as you were talking about a little bit earlier, if you look at the acromion, you uh, can start to have acetabularization of the acromion and you cons- or you'll see like, you know, when that humeral head has been um, pushing up against the acromion for so long because there's no rotator cuff in between there, that humor has. To, I mean, the uh, acromion starts to get you know like a little smooth, a kind of have a little crescent um, shape, or you just what we call the acetabularization of the uh, of the acromion. So that is kind of what rotator cuff arthropathy is. Again, there'll be clinical arthritis and in, uh, in these patients as well. And for for uh, for the treatment of this, we mentioned a little bit earlier, this would be a reverse shoulder orthoplasty, you know, in our older patients. But for our younger patients, you know, there are some options for tendon transfers if, you know, you have a young active patient. So just know that. But that's what rotator cuff orthopathy is. And um, kind of switching gears, and I think we've, we've beat up rotator cuff tears for a little while here. And I'm sure you could talk forever on rotator cuff tears as well as yeah. any other any other part of orthopedics. Um, but moving forward and now we're going to talk a little bit about throwing, uh, what are some of the phases of throwing and then what diagnoses are associated with, uh, with some of these phases?
1: Yeah. the, the one part of, uh, sports in orthopedics that I actually do have an interest in is the phases of throwing (laughs) and uh, overhead throwing athlete. I, uh, played baseball my entire life I played baseball in college and continued that in residency so nice. uh, I, I do like kind of this aspect of it so the phases of throwing and they're the diagrams you'll see uh, on the internet whether that's uh, ortho bullets or uh, in your textbooks um, they'll show you kind of five separate pictures of somebody throwing a baseball, but it, it can be translated to just about everything, uh, even though the mechanics are a little bit different, but it's throwing a football. So, I mean, look for these sort of same things in your quarterbacks, look for these same things in uh, javelin throwers, your softball players, uh, all of that. It's not just strictly for, uh, for baseball here, but um, the windup, really, there's uh, no... Uh, associated diagnoses with the the windup, because that's just the kind of gearing up and getting you, your body in position to start the throwing motion. Uh, Early cocking is when the uh, throwing athlete begins to kind of bring their arm up overhead, but they haven't quite reached terminal external rotation of the shoulder Uh, Late cocking is once the uh, throwing athlete has kind of reached uh, maximal torque on the shoulder, and it's when they really put all of their effort into uh, propelling the ball or javelin or spear if you are doing uh, like aboriginal medicine in the outback of Australia Um, is when they're really propelling all of that force forward into throwing that object. And so this is where you're going to see a lot of the uh, shoulder and elbow pathology, because the key parts about late cocking is, uh, has a very high torque on the shoulder and also the area of maximal elbow valgus stress. So that's where you'll see the MCL strain and tears uh you'll see internal impingement of the shoulder and also this is where slap tears uh become an issue for uh overhead throwing athletes because of the peel back mechanism and so kind of breaking down this late cocking portion of the throwing uh motion is so the MCL strain and tear they're going to have uh like a pitcher or somebody else come in and they're going to say hey uh my elbow kills me the inside part of my elbow kills me when I throw and I've lost about 10 miles uh on my my 10 miles per hour on my fastball and it's just I I've lost control to also talk about losing uh pitch control they're throwing more balls they're throwing uh more balls in the dirt they're causing more walks that sort of stuff and so um the internal impingement portion is up at the shoulder and the internal impingement uh, occurs when the posterior capsule and rotator cuff folds in and gets impinged between the glenoid and the humeral head. And this is really due to uh, tightness of the posterior capsule and rotator cuff uh, and then slap tears as the shoulder gets maximally externally rotated that uh, if you think about it just kind of put your hands in like a, a glenoid and, and uh humeral head up in front of you and do that external rotation of the uh, humeral head and you'll see that the external rotation forces are going to cause a peel back mechanism of the superior labrum and cause a slap tear uh, in the shoulder so Again, the late cocking is one of the most commonly tested portions of the arm throwing motion. Uh, The next phase is acceleration, and that is really just the pitcher or whoever kind of whipping the ball forward and coming from maximal external rotation almost over to maximal internal rotation to propel the ball towards their target. And then the follow through and deceleration is the next most commonly tested portion of the throwing motion and it's actually considered to be the most harmful phase of throwing because this is where you have the highest torque on the shoulder and you have an eccentric contraction of all the rotator cuff musculature so you're going to have an aggravation of your slap tears you're going to have a biceps tendinopathy as well and then you'll also see uh, actually distal biceps and brachialis tendinitis and uh, the key part about the follow through and the deceleration is that uh, rotator cuff strain that is pushing because essentially the throwing motion tries to pull your entire arm away from your body, but it's focusing on that rotator cuff musculature to keep it attached to the glenoid. And that very rapid eccentric contraction can really aggravate the rotator cuff. So again, briefly, Uh, Key points are the late cocking phase and the MCL strains and internal impingement. And then the follow through and deceleration is highest torque on the shoulder and uh, eccentric contraction of the rotator cuff musculature. There's a bunch of good videos on this on YouTube as well. So uh, if my just kind of verbal definition of this throwing motion doesn't (laughs) do it for you, look up, and, you, and, the, and they break them down very nicely with pictures associated with it. But um, it's, it's uh, becoming more and more popular in the sports world just because uh, we're seeing uh, these kids where at the age of 8 to 10 years old, they're already becoming specialized in a sport. And yeah. that constant... Uh, stress on these muscles, ligaments, tendons, all of that stuff is is starting to cause early problems for these kids. And it's really because of how uh, dangerous this throwing motion is to our shoulder and elbow. And so uh, another kind of commonly tested and uh, kind of covered topic in the sports world in regards to throwing is that kids shouldn't be playing the same sport year round or if they do play the same sport year round that they need to switch positions and take a break from time to time
0: thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the nailed it ortho podcast we hope you enjoyed this please hit that subscribe button and please go and follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at nailed it ortho and we will uh, see you all for our next episode